Welcome to this week's CTO studio, an amazing conversation with Lou Sainz and Pat Cullen. We talk about QA-less engineering. Many of you will know QA is a big word in our organizations. And so we discuss how to skip this big, heavy process at the end of deployment. And we talk about how to put that inside of the engineering culture. So enjoy. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne de Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Seven CTOs is a global collective of CTOs helping each other become world-class leaders through our peer groups that meet once a month, as well as one-on-one coaching and mentorship. We carefully assemble our forums with seven like-minded people who are at similar and adjacent stages with their companies. They help each other solve challenges unique to technical leadership roles. Each forum gets assigned an executive coach who leads conversations of emotional support and growth as well as holds space for difficult conversations we need to have sometimes. Check out 7CTOs.com and apply today. Mention CTO Studio and get a free strategy session with yours truly. And I truly look forward to hearing from you. Sure. So I'm Pat, um, VP of Engineering over at Carrot. Actually, one of my early roles was a manual tester back when like interfaces couldn't be very well tested from an automated fashion. So I've got that going for me. I don't know. What else is on an intro? What does Carrot do? Yeah, yeah. So we provide fertility benefits to companies. When your company is looking to expand their benefit offerings to their employees, if you look at traditional paths like extending insurance with an infertility rider, those can be quite limiting and exclusionary to certain parts of our population. So we come in and offer gestational carrier adoption and your standard fertility care services, such as preservation, IVF, IUI, and create a mechanism to uh, administer that and guide your employees. It's great. Every time you say that, my I just feel a little warmth in my heart. I, I love our user feedback channel. It's my favorite Slack oh, channel. Do they say that they have warmth in their hearts? They do. They do. There's tears. It's everything. It's amazing. They're truly impeccable. Lou? Yeah. So Lou Science here. I'm CTO at Flock Freight. Flock Freight is optimizing the way uh, freight moves in the country. We, we try to take, basically, you can think of it as carpooling, try to utilize empty space on large trucks, we're talking tractor trailers, right? So large, a large portion of the, the freight that's uh, being hauled is sitting on trucks that have space available. And so we reduce carbon by sharing that space, optimizing, and also delivers a better customer experience. Because when customers are shipping small freight, they typically end up in warehouses. They don't, uh, whereas our system sort of real-time carpool. So it's almost like using the trucks as a mobile warehouse. And so we're all about eliminating waste and inefficiency, uh, indirect clean tech sustainability solution. And then it's really cool. It's fun. Ooh, every time you say that, I just, my heart, I just feel my warmth in my heart. That's in a complex or, space. Inorganic carbon. Lou, do you guys ever measure the time that a package spends inside of these trucks? Oh, yeah. Is that a big one? Yeah, that's part of the value prop, right? So what I described was more the sustainability value prop, but the value prop for our paying customers is reducing that time because 
if they're afraid it's going into a warehouse and it, it actually takes a lot longer and it, you can have, you can even have delays and, and loss and stuff. Whereas if you're just shipping point to point in a truck, it's going in the truck and it's going to the destination. So there are some improvements there that we can make too. I love that. Okay. So let's talk about QA. So QA is almost like that person that's sitting on your shoulder during your your growth as a company, which can be in various states of neglect. And then there's all of a sudden there's all this emphasis on it. And then everyone wants to automate everything. And CEOs notice this QA word whenever they start seeing deliveries slip or quality slips. And it's everyone's an expert on QA all of a sudden. And we had this conversation in seven CTOs and the two of you have graciously volunteered to share some of your experiences in all of that. So why don't we start with just defining, Pat, maybe you can jump in and just help our audience understand what is QA, what is that burden on the organization, and what are some of the pitfalls that we face? Just riff a little bit on that. Sure. I think it's it's a broad term, but from my perspective, QA is... Generally, I think people interpret it as a step to create a specialized role to ensure quality in how you engineer your product. And I think what are those roles tends to be two from my experience. You're either a QA engineer or you're like an analyst slash tester. And that's the specialized role of quality in your organization. That's where I would start. And is that something that is when you think about the deployment process, is that something that happens before deployment, after deployment? Yeah, from my experience, the quality steps that a QA person would take would be, let's see, I guess technically if you differentiate build and deploy, then it would be post-build, pre-deploy to ensure quality gates prior to a deployment. I think that can be interpreted different places at other companies, but from my experience, it's a usually the ownership of a suite of tests and verification post-build put like where you have a system that's ready to go out to production, but you want to verify it is of quality. And of course, isn't this sort of eradicated with just having a wonderful test suite and just having green lights all the way and the software works and off it goes? What is the role of QA? Yeah, there's a a lot of what a lot of organizations face is a is a conflict of interest. So if you're motivated to release release, you need checks and balances. And companies will institute QA engineers. If we keep focusing on the engineer as opposed to the analyst, it works for both, honestly, actually. But it, it's in situations where either you, I find it's either you have a high quality bar that's that that you need to ensure is upheld and should stop the line if it is not met. So you create that specialization, or maybe you have a complex domain. Uh, maybe the quality bar isn't as high, but you're not empowered to simplify your domain. So you need to introduce additional gates, such as what a what, what QA would introduce to ensure that all of those odd edge cases are are verified along the way to make sure that you haven't drifted from what the original requirements were intending to do. So that healthy tension between the, the builders and the people incentivized to release and the quality assurance of, hey, I know we want to release, but we're having this issue or that issue as part of that build process. Yeah, I see it. I think that's a great characterization. I think QA in general terms is maybe more of a concept, right? Like we don't necessarily have to define it in terms of people. We can define it in terms of what is the concept of QA? It's quality assurance. How do you assure quality? In, in a piece of software or extend that to any sort of product. 
And, and there's a number of ways to do that. And, and, and for sure, a, a very common and tried and true way is to establish roles and responsibilities and, and specialist, specialized team members that focus on quality. That's one way that it's been done for a long time. Uh, at Flock Freight, don't do that. We don't have specialized QA testers or QA engineers. We do all of our quality assurance within the engineering organization. And, and but the, the check and balance is still really important. And so there's a, a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of different techniques to create those checks and balances. And, and there's pros and cons to, to not having a dedicated role, which we actually every so often discuss or debate. Yeah, I can imagine, I can imagine the investment that has to go into the culture of that engineering team if you want to fuse quality and, and speed of delivery. Yeah, exactly. That's, you have to think of it as a cultural thing. And so there's DevOps as a cultural thing too, or in, in, a long time ago, people often would have development and operations, right? Like I remember uh, a role called a release engineer, and they were the ones that got all the, did all the integration and managed the release, and it was a job. And, and that still exists in many organizations. And with DevOps, it's, there's this cultural shift of let's actually have engineers build tools and let's establish processes and then have engineers product engineers say, apply operations and manage their own operations and concept in microservices. So the, again, it's a culture. The point of this is there's a culture and how do you create that culture and how do you keep those checks and balances and how do you continue to assure quality if you don't have a dedicated QA engineer? And it's probably an, an open question. I'm sure we could do some Googling and see <laughs> lots of pros and cons and different things to consider. Yeah, I, I want to make sure not to confuse quality assurance with acceptance testing or user acceptance testing. Those are different things. I think it's, I don't know, we could define it. I, I, maybe there's an official, I'm thinking of quality assurance as an overall umbrella and UAT might be one aspect. Code review is another aspect. Testing, there may be automated testing, there may be manual testing, right? You can even go as far as beyond right deployment and in production and beta testing by right there, there's lots of i think if we agree to think of quality assurance as an umbrella term then i'd say why don't we say uat is one aspect of it yeah uat is a very small dimension of how i think of necessarily quality it is the provincial top of the pyramid it's a very tiny top it's a little triangle the rest is both much bigger it goes down so in that sense, you've got so many other layers from before, like from just engineering and designing quality in to begin with, to, to the unit test level, et cetera, to the discussions you're having with product and understanding the business requirements. And then on the other side, you have monitoring and alerting in production and the ability to change quickly as other ways to ensure quality. Because if I have a bug in production and maybe I didn't have UAT coverage, but I can revert that within a minute, then I have quality. Very much, very much a subset, a topic under QA but not QA itself. Yeah, so let's, what I'd like to do is start from the world where QA is supposedly failing. There's a threshold in every startup where everyone starts talking about QA and it's driven 
by this idea that the engineering team isn't delivering quality anymore. They're not moving as quickly as they used to. That adage of every time we release, there's new bugs in the system, or we seem to be fixing the same bugs over and over again. And then the product people, and even all the way up to the executive suite, starts using this word QA. Oh, I Googled QA or at my previous company, we had a QA department or there's people in the Philippines that will click through everything. Why does that happen? What what in your progression leads to this world where everything falls apart? Because software is inherently complex. <laughs> it's just, it's it, it almost feels like a, a cop out, but it all, it all stems from what, what culture you're growing at your organization. And what do you prioritize and what do you value? And, and what are your experiences too? Because this is something that needs to be learned along the way as well. So like how, how like why is quality hindering? Or if, if it's speed, that's a funky one, I guess. Because in a lot of dimensions, QA can slow you down depending on how you're focused on it. But like, why is your quality hindering? And then a lot of people immediately jump to specialized role because it makes sense because it's been there. And so organizations will start to have dedicated people so that they can continue to have their culture believes that their responsibility set, whether of what exists today, doesn't emphasize it enough. And then there you are, you start to build out a a QA discipline. Conceivably, when you start your organization where speed is everything, innovation, competitive advantage, funding, it feels like quality takes a bit of a backseat. Not, you still want to do quality, but it feels like the, the system might still be pretty simple at that point. And is there just all of a sudden a perfect storm where you ha- as CTO realize or have realized in the past potentially, oh, we have neglected this whole quality concept or is it absolutely possible to bake this in from day one, even at the expense of speed? Or is that a misnomer? It doesn't have to be at the expense of speed. Yeah, I feel like when people say quality is lacking or your tests are failing, what they're saying is probably more that your design is bad. And at the earlier stages of an organization, there's less business rules. There's less complexity. So it, it may not, it just may not rear its head yet. So the organization is growing. And then those edge cases don't, they're no longer edge cases and you start to get exposed and you start to feel that death by a thousand cuts. And at that point you have some decisions to make and there's different paths you could take. You need to either start to discuss what is your, okay, like we've identified that there are shortcomings to our system. How do we start contributing to that so that we can work ourselves out of this complexity and stop getting hit by all these edge cases or alternatively, how can we just build a suite that does that for us at the end of the line and that point? At that time, I think it is generally easier to just go with what you've seen in the industry. And if you look 10 years ago, that move introduced QA and start to have them own that part of the system. But that's down the line. It is very hard for an organization to make those right investments when they start to feel that pain. Because usually it's in that like curve of the hockey stick too. So this is just one more thing you have to be thinking about while you're trying to grow that you have to increase your quality and reduce the complexity of your domain or take a complex domain and somehow make it simpler. That's a big ask. And so this is where this is where introducing that role can be a much simpler approach. And I feel like behaviorally, if at that point you start introducing a QA, like you said, 10 years ago strategy, QA, that is could that potentially have a negative impact on the behavior of engineering? 
where they're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to deliver my ticket because I'm going to be within my sprint velocity, but then push the quality, but essentially further downstream or, or is that kindergarten stuff? I think that goes back to the culture, right? So that, that's one of the debatable points of having QA as a separate role versus not doing so. Because that's a failure mode. You don't want, or the debate I've been part of over and over is if the engineering team doesn't need to do QA or they don't feel they need to do QA and because there's a different person that does QA. And then the debate that often starts with, look, the engineers, software engineers, they don't really want to do that. They, they want to write code. They want to build product. And, and or they're not really good at that. You need somebody really focused on that that's going to be good at it. Okay, let's... Let's say that's the case, but then how do you prevent a cycle of now almost enabling a software engineer to say, yeah, that's right. It isn't my job. I just write really good code and then I give it to somebody else to test it. I'm not saying that's always what will happen if you have two engineers. It's more, that's a cultural thing you have to watch out for. And of course, if, if, if you don't have QA, then you need to maintain the culture that no, our jobs as software engineers or really cross-functional. This is the way I, I prefer to set up organizations, right? Empowered teams that are cross-functional, that are responsible for their area. Hey, we as a team are responsible for quality too. And I love how Pat said it starts way early. Like it starts at the requirements phase, at the design phase. It starts with your processes around change management and deployment and how you think about code review, right? So if you have that culture, then uh, it, it is, of course, our job. And then you get advocates of, for example, test-driven development, where it's, this is the only way you should write software. You should actually start with tests because then you're going to have a better design. And then over time, especially if you start from early on, like we did, we just happened to never have QA. And so we started some of these processes early on. And don't get me wrong, there was, it was way messier, but we had code review from the beginning and we had automated tests from the beginning, not just unit tests. And so then you build up a test suite that grows over time. And, but the key point though, is that culture of, you no, know, we are responsible for QA. That's a failure mode to say somebody else's job is QA. I think just to add to that too, is that question. It's just the idea around the game of telephone. And if you're creating a specialized role, it is never the same experience for you to, if you're in the engineer won't have the same experience as the QA person. So it's one thing to say, it's not my job, but even if you take it the most altruistic way possible. They just don't have the same experiences. They can be communicated what the test results were, but they're not the ones that clicked that failed test and worked through it. And they didn't fully, why we talk about DevOps. So the more that you can create a stream of work that goes end to end, the more that that contributor is going to try to produce value across that entire stream of value from ideation to release and continual important part of that. Yeah. And then Etienne, you mentioned the pressure to release. That's the other, that's the hard thing, I think of being an engineering manager or a leader in an organization like ours where we don't have dedicated QA and you're trying to keep this culture, but you're also trying to move fast and you're trying to hit your, say, you, you want to have good velocity, you want to get releases done. Engineers are motivated to burn down and meet a sprint commitment, for example. You don't want to shortchange QA though. So it goes back to that process and back to that internal check and balance, right? How do you enforce that and make sure, oh, hold on guys. So our iterations end on Tuesdays and on Monday night or Monday afternoon. Yeah, yeah, no, this story's good. I'm almost done coding. 
should be fine. That's a red flag. Wait, you're almost done coding. So you haven't done code review yet. You haven't written, have you written any tests? Oh no, I'm doing those later. We don't enforce CDD. That's one of the debates right now is, should we be a little bit uh, tougher on that? Like maybe we should enforce CDD. We then you get it done. Are you done or exactly. you're done, done? Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> so that's exactly right. How do you define done? I love the done, done concept and you have a checklist and did you demo it as a product manager looked at it and accepted it? So we, we have one of those checklists. So that, that helps the other failure mode, of course, which we, we see all the time is okay. They are say the software engineers are performing QA. They're not shortchanging it, but they're too, it's all manual. And it's wait a minute, guys, why are you spending all this time? Do we not have the automated? So we didn't write them yet. So then it goes back to why don't we have them written? So. You just have to keep an eye on it. But at the end of the day, I think it's a cultural thing. I have so many questions. The Just so I can jump into this concept of last minute wrapping up the coding, clearly you're not going to hit the next day's sprint release. Would you say that in, in, in most cases, I'm assuming that the story or the ticket was a little harder and they, whatever circumstances, it was harder to get it done. How do you handle then the fact that it wasn't properly checklisted or QA'd? Does that just, does, does that just not go into the release or how do you guys typically handle that? Is it a no brainer that it doesn't go into the release? That's where there's, you can have a failure mode where there's pressure to let, what if that story is like the most important one that. PM really wanted to have in the next deployment or the next release, you might be pressured into releasing it. And then that's often where you might have a, a production bug or an outage or something. So it, it depends. It's not always, by the way, that, oh, that one story ended up being harder. There's a cascading effect where maybe some other things were harder. And then this started a little later. Maybe this was one that was like, should be easy, but took a little long. So it, it may not just be that one story, but in the perfect ideal world, you would say, no, you, this is not, right? This is not making it. It didn't go through the checklist, so it will slip and that's okay. And that'd be the perfect world. And then it goes into the next one and we can retro on it. But sometimes that's not what happens because engineers are motivated to get things out. So the, the and I want to get to this whole conversation we had around non-QA dedicated departments and also how to how, how do we help CTOs listening to us right now transition from a QA department into non-QA. So think about that a little bit. But my question here is, do you define then the QA as a specific list of things that have to be checked? code reviewed, this happened, pot tests, pot, do you have it? It's not subjective. In other words, it's always, it's just, it's just basically the execution of a process inside of the, the delivery cycle. Yes. Not as formally as I think that for us, we have different levels of quality within our organization. There are certain things we can't, and there are certain levels of coverage, certain levels of design standards, requirements around our code review cycle. And then there are certain other areas that like the exposure to risk, like is not as, as much of a hindrance to the business. And so we'd actually act, optimize in those areas for, for more speed and be tolerant. That means we're shifting, we're testing in production in certain areas. And as long as we have the right heuristics, then we're okay. Yeah. Multiple checklists maybe is the, yeah. the answer is yes, but multiple I mean, checklists. That's all part of the process, right? I think and said, Pat, that it's all about assessing your, and what kind of product are we talking about? Is this a mature product that has, that's mission critical and, and can't be down? at all? Or is this an MVP 
that is in a small beta that we're, we're trying to validate and it's, we don't want, there was a great talk. I, I can't remember. I, I think it was Kent Beck, but I, I can't remember right now, but he was, he gave a talk at a lean startup conference that I went to many years ago. And he had just, if, if, if forgive me if I got the wrong name, but he, this person, I think Kent Beck had just gotten a job at Facebook and he was giving a talk and he called it jazz engineering. So we can probably find it and, and see if I'm right. It's like the Joe Rogan show. Somebody's checking on I'm the background right now. And his talk was about, he called it jazz engineering. And it was exactly what you just said, Pat. It's, it depends, even the level of design, he was talking more about, hey, the code doesn't have, not everything's fully de decomposed. Is it, am I following all of the best coding practices and design patterns? And he said, yeah, sometimes you want to do that. Other times, maybe you don't because you don't even know if this product is going to be something that we continue to invest in. It's a prototype or an MVP. So let's not over-engineer all this stuff. Once we have some traction, maybe we'll come back and, and then you get into a whole concept of how do you do refactoring and all that. But very good point that the level of risk should dictate the process. You want to be flexible. Yeah. Simon Wardley has some good discussions on this around the ideas of pioneer settlers and town planners and how you should approach them differently. And that maybe at your town planner, you've got this core business model that is, 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 is essentially becoming commoditized to the business and you, your tolerance is very low for risk there. And you have additional testing that, that needs to happen to ensure quality. Where like you're saying, the pioneer is, this is an MVP. We're going to throw it out, bolt it on, Let's learn the value and then we'll come back and we'll turn it into a settler and we'll start to reinforce it. But like, we haven't even proven this is worth worthwhile to the business yet. Let's start there. As long as you have, like this always comes back to culture. As long as you have the, the trust, because at a lot of businesses at the same time, to be fair, MVP becomes a bad word because that's the, 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 the scapegoat so that you can just skip quality and then build on top of. So you have to be careful there. Yep. So that's uh, Simon Wardley from Wardley Mapping, right? The Wardley Maps? Yep. Yeah. yeah I, I, and I think this is why I started the conversation with when QA becomes a problem inside of an organization is that that pervasive sense that there's a failure mode in the company because some bug was released. Or, so in other words, the risk might be an internal risk of perception or internal process. But I do love what both of you are saying around, in the end, it is subjective because you do have to manage the risk. Much more tolerance for broken code being released to an MVP that's available to, to 500 beta users or alpha users than the core product. I think what I think when I think about unit testing, the, the thing that might be working against this idea is that unit tests either pass or fail, right? It's pretty binary. Now, I'm assuming with binary, we're talking about regression testing and unit testing, which basically always has to pass. There's never a moment where you say, oh, this one test is failing. It's keeping up the whole release. Let's just deploy any. That's on yeah, that, that resonates. I, I, I got this like. This vision of, uh, what is it? I love Lucy at the chocolate factory, just like stuffing in the chocolates in her mouth because you've got this acceptance test that's been built up that starts failing because it's flaky and you're trying to let this thing through at the same time while trying to keep it green. 
Like you can get into some real funky states there where the ideal output is that your acceptance suite is always green and that it should be a gate. But I feel like for the most part, people are probably lying. Like at some point, almost everybody's decided that certain tests have to be ignored and they're not introducing that same in the meantime. So they have said, we are going to incur the risk for velocity because our acceptance test suite does not, there's no, we no longer have confidence in this section of its, of, of what it has under test. Thereby, we're going to ignore it and incur the risk because it's not worth slowing down the business right now. Yeah, it reminds me of compiler warnings. You're compiling your big ass app and the warnings are flying as it's compiling and you're just like, eh. Yeah, yeah. We had a we had an issue a couple of years ago where we found that we started to have uh, rot on compiler warnings, which meant that you didn't care what was going on in the build as much. So we had to have a pause for quality on that exact topic, which... I think would have been more complex if you had more specialized roles, more people to talk to, more people to coordinate across. But yeah, very relevant. Same idea. Like you can't get comfortable with it. And, and I think part of the challenge is that this presents itself at the most inopportune times because I remember one time we had a massive upgrade we were doing to our systems and all of a sudden someone, there was one seemed like a pretty innocuous upgrade to a library that basically was incompatible with the test suite. And so we couldn't move forward with the tests without some regression uh, or some revert. And the revert then got us backed into another problem. And, and yeah, it's just, it's, you're, trying to, you're trying to hit the deadline. You're trying to get to this promised delivery date. And then you're hit with these roadblocks that just are not, you did not anticipate that. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, a lot of these hindrances we, or these issues we run into, I, I, I do think really come back down to how do you effectively estimate what you're working on? How do you plan for unplanned work? How do you protect the team's time so that when something happens that wasn't expected, they have the time to do it. And that is really hard to do. And we've, we, I think we change our mechanisms internally about once every six months on this topic because it starts to become outdated. The, the, the teams become more complex. They have different demands. So like your systems on how you manage your team's work need to continuously evolve to protect quality in the system. Otherwise, it, that's the first thing that will go. Yeah, I'll get that done. I'll just reduce quality because that's the easiest thing for me to do rather than escalating to adjust the like time estimation management systems in place in a business. Yeah, and it's, it's never really the, in the engineer's mind, it's never really the compromise on quality, right? Because we are producing quality code. It's that, flying without a safety net like oh, you know what it's gonna work i know it's gonna work i coded it it's fine and so there's this mentality it's not really the oh i'm gonna degrade my own quality it's the willingness to risk that step of quality assurance with a few minutes left i was hoping we could freestyle a little bit and help ctos listening to this who might be having issues with quality in their delivery pipeline. I, I really love, it just reminds me of what last week we had a conversation with around the role of the CTO and we talked about technical debt and Nishant brought up this idea that it's not really technical debt, it's organizational debt. Uh, I really love that. And with quality, it's not really technical quality, it's the quality, it's organizational quality that starts, like you said, Pat, right at the specs, design docs, whatever happens, even the conversations in the C-suite. Is there a sense of quality in our interactions? 
I, I really think that's a game changer. But I would love for you to speak to the CTOs that are struggling with the contention inside their organizations because the delivery has slowed down or the quality has gone down. What comes to mind for you when we think about this QA-less organization? Throw out some tips and tricks and concerns and questions, whatever comes to mind for you. So one of the first things I would say is what gets measured gets done. And if you really want to get it done, measure it and publish the measurement. So step one, if you don't already have it, is measure quality. Try to measure quality. And so hopefully you have a system to track bugs. That's step one. Then you can go a little deeper and say, add some dimensions. What kind of bug is it? Etienne, you mentioned regression. There might be another kind of bug, which is, for example, we, we have something called a known bug, where say we find a bug, but then we discuss it and we say, this is okay for this release. So we're still going to log it. We're going to count it as a bug, but we found it in QA and we're okay with it. So you can track what kind of bug it is. You can also come up with another dimension that I think is important, which is how severe is the, or, and, or what level of priority do you put in? We, we have, we, we can, we differentiate between three levels, normal, high, and emergency. Normal is just, okay, it's a bug and we'll prioritize it into iterations as normal as we do with everything else. High means, oh, this is actually going to be what we call crashed in. So we're going to replan our iteration and bring this in. And then emergency is not only are we going to do that, but we need to like patch release or we need to get it out to production as soon as possible. And often those go hand in hand with what we call an incident. And so that would be my, my, my step two suggestion is have some sort of incident response process that falls under SRE. Google has open source their process and it's very good. And, and then this kind of circles back to culture. So if you've got your software engineers having to ensure the production quality and be involved in incidents, that's all the more motivation to improve or keep quality high. It also goes back to Pat, you made a very important point, I think, which is if you can at least recover quickly, that goes a long way where maybe you can, you don't have to have perfect quality, which put that in quotes, obviously, but if you try to, okay, just can't have any bugs, that's very difficult. And in most applications, unless you're in a kind of life or death kind of application, maybe that's over-engineering, but if you can at least recover quickly, then, okay, shoot, we had a bug, it got through the process, but we can really quickly recover. That goes a long way, especially to your point at TN where okay, the business is growing and there's lots of stakeholders now really concerned about quality. We'll be able to recover quickly, have an incident response process and that visibility too. There's a, some of this is the CTO's role to communicate and be transparent about here's what we're doing. Here's how we handle this. And if there is an incident, this is what we're going to do about it. And then this is our postmortem here. You can read it. Here's what we've learned from this. Here's what we're going to do to prevent it in the future. I, th I think if it's coming up at your org too, it's probably coming up from certain dimensions of your organization. So having empathy for those that are raising it and thinking about why they are, and then thinking about what motivates them in their role and how it relates to your role. And sometimes you have to go to the level of where do your roles connect? So you can create like an alignment on, on, on the level of quality and tolerance so that they can have an expectation of what's to come, where I've been in situations where you can have some dimension of operational counterpart. And then the ones that are dealing with some of this, maybe it's not, maybe it's, we, we don't have to be talking about prod ops. It can be just something 
somebody that deals with some part that impacts the day-to-day because they rely on your system. So it could be as customer success team, anything like that. Creating alignment and understanding what that they should expect from the system is also going to set their expectations on quality from their side of things so that they're not just escalating to you when in reality, the business has accepted that this is the level of investment that we're going to make. And that, yes, this level of bug. And then as the second topic, just doubling down that we could talk about writing writing bug tickets into Jira that fall into the ether of a backlog of ticket number 1,347. Or you can have, I think, higher accountability with an incident management process that Google's got good docs. PagerDuty has great documents on this. You don't even have to reinvent the wheel here. PagerDuty's, I've, I literally highlighted and copy pasted pieces of it. There's no need to change it. And just have a categorization, have a five whys discussion after every single one and deliberately decide whether you're going to fix it or not. And when you decide not to fix it, you have this process that's documented. That's another opportunity to say, I am working, operating under this business assumption of risk so that I can create this level of speed. I can take one item off the roadmap if you want for the year towards this level of execution. I don't think that's a good idea because this value will be more important to our customers this year. And that's the tolerance that I'm working with. It gives a, don't throw your hands up when you're working with your business counterparts. You can do more to translate what that means for the business and, and step into their shoes a little further and overlap that Venn diagram further so that they can either verify your decision or challenge it in, in a way that makes them say, whether this is the CEO or whoever, but makes them say, no, my context says that we, we need to you know improve our tolerance, decrease our tolerance for risk and improve our standard of quality, thereby I'm saying that we shouldn't get this thing done or we should approach staffing with this strategy or whatever it may be, whatever tool out of your tool belt. But there's that that triangle with what money, speed, and quality. And you can't, you, you have to make a decision here. You have to have alignment there. But, but yeah, back to incident management has been a huge one for us. That is so gold. Both of you just, wow, that was amazing. The, the measurement, the tooling. I do want to ask Pat on the incident management as a building block inside of QA. Just help me understand that either log bug number 1,312 or incident management. Can you just help me just clarify that? So I think some places, if it's an outage, they create an incident card. We take it as any sort of disruption and disruption could be a bug depending on the impact of that bug. And I think a lot of organizations, what they will do is they'll defer quickly to creating a bug to be triaged by a product management team, where instead what they should be doing is creating, maybe it's a SEV4 and not a SEV1, but like companies tend to not embrace the SEV4 or the SEV5. They embrace the SEV1 and the SEV2 because it's some level of major outage, but then they stop using their incident management system if it's not having a major outage for a a reasonable subset of employee base, I'm sorry, customer base. And uh, I think there's more you can get out of that system if you're actually willing to take the time to maintain it correctly. For us, we put that accountability on our, we rotate as like an engineering manager for our for product team that kind of steps in and becomes the accountability partner for those for that person that was on call that incurred or recognized that there was this issue that then becomes a feedback cycle into that product team. So in other words, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the don't have the incident manager tool automatically create these bugs when rather see it as an incident management conversation that needs to happen around the various SEV levels, especially if they're lower down the, 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 the priority or incident and see what you can garner from that, that then makes it back into the system. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't think there's, uh, there's plenty of organizations that will just straight up skip incident management for that bug. So it won't even show up in the system. 
So there's not even a, there's not even a connection of accountability there. It's It'll just, just be, hey, fix this ASAP. Yep. Here's a bug. It's on the backlog next to the other 50 things that you're triaging of very, very interesting. You're right. So you lose the, you lose that distinction that, Hey, this is a sieve. This is an incident, but now it just goes back into the backlog of, and gets treated like all the other bugs is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have a conversation about it. Like we're required to do your standard five whys exercise when an incident comes in. You're not required to do the five whys when somebody puts a bug on the backlog. And that's treated the same as somebody that happened to stumble on to something that you don't like. It's, I, I don't know, uh, maybe I was clicking around the site and I saw a bug and I think it might be important. So I throw it into a, a triage column for the team. That now is treated the same way as an incident that has come into the team. Got it. Good. We said that this all boils down to culture. So let's have a, a final word to CTOs who now have to go back from hearing this to potentially starting that process or having that conversation around quality with their engineers. Lou, I really love the, the measurement thing because as CTO, it feels like, especially with a smaller company or your VPE, just introducing a, a internal facing dashboard of what's going on with the system, at least just surfacing that and showing the willingness to be transparent feels like that's almost step one to potentially creating a cultural shift around quality. Yeah, I would say what we discussed earlier and, and Pat pointed out, done, right? And having a process. So if you don't already have this, make a checklist or make various checklists that are, here is the process that we want to have and quality as part of it. And here's actually quality as a first-class citizen, as opposed to only What's our process to get code out to production? And then that goes side by side with the, with the measurement of these things. So we're not just measuring our PRs or our velocity. We're measuring our quality too. And, and we're looking at that together. They balance each other. But yeah, I think a lot of it in, in, in code review, do you have a code review process? Is that documented, right? What are the standards? I think that all of that can be part of the culture shift if needed yeah and i've and i've seen with code reviews man the amount of coaching and investment we need to make as leaders to allow for those reviews to be safe it's no no different from if you're going to do retrospectives so that is a big part of your job or your vpe or your engineering managers is how do you create that safe space this is uh, we have a saying comes from our ceo where we want in, information not ammunition. This is, we're, we're here trying to solve problems. We need the information to solve the problems. Let's work together. But yeah, code review, there's all kinds of good, good resources out there on how to do good code reviews, what not to spend a bunch of time on. We even build linting so that you don't need a code review on style things can be automated. Very good. Thank you for listening to today's episode of CTO Studio. This is a little taste of the many conversations we have inside 7 CTOs. In addition to our peer groups, 7CTO's members are also part of Slack, where ad hoc issues can be addressed by the larger collective. We also have one to two Zoom calls a week, where we go deep on specific challenges like brand new technologies, hiring strategies, people management, and expanding our influence and branding as technology leaders. Also check out 7CTOs.com 
where we publish our list of events like upcoming retreats and colloquiums in a city near you. Applications are always open, so mention CTO Studio when you apply and you'll get a free strategy session with me. Wouldn't that be fun? See you next week.